This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And commuting, you might be doing it right now. Great to have you along for the ride. Uh, hope you're getting a smooth run this morning. Um, but often, hell and the commute go in the same sentence. Traffic congestion, train delays, and the fact that investment in infrastructure rarely keeps up with need can turn an everyday trip to work and back into a total nightmare for some. Uh, but there's a lot more to the commute than sitting in traffic, according to our next guest. David Bissell from the University of Melbourne has written a book called Transit Life, How Commuting is Transforming Our Cities. And it's great to have you with us, David. And it is an academic book uh but very well written and quite entertaining uh, so thanks for that thank you i'm glad you enjoyed it <laughs> um yeah and I, I suppose i mean if we look global first commuting is happening everywhere all over the world in all major cities and uh you know many people say that commuting is a waste of time it's completely unproductive but you have a much more nuanced view I would hope so, and I think that was really the starting point for this project. I mean, commuting is a massive worldwide issue. Um, cities are growing, populations are increasing. Um, you know, people are saying that the 21st century will be the urban city, the urban century. Um, and so, in you know, a city like Melbourne, where so much of the political debate is is about how to cater for populations that maybe don't live so close to their home, you know, particularly in a year like this where we're getting to the state election, people are reflecting on the issues that matter to them. And so, you know, when people are doing that, they're thinking, oh, well, actually, I'm finding that my commute is maybe getting a bit longer or, you know, I've been doing this for so many years. Why can't they do something about it? The commute it? is political. And I, I think, you know, we just heard, um, I think just over the weekend that we're going to hit 25 million people in Australia 20 odd years before it was predicted. So there's the squeeze is on and a lot of that growth is in Melbourne. Exactly, exactly. But I think what's really interesting is that there are there's a lot of scaremongering around this as well. You know, people uh reports come out saying, you know, in in thirty years time we're going to be commuting twice the distance or twice the twice the length of time. And uh you know, sometimes sort of breezy statements like that come out and, and you know, without too much in the way of um, you know, factual basis, you know, they're just speculative and they completely ignore that there are so many ways that our journeys are transformed. So a lot of the debate tends to focus around infrastructure. So why are we building motorways or not building motorways? Why are we investing in public transport or not? But there's actually so much more, so many more um, people, institutions, sites in the city that are actually changing people's commutes in all kinds of ways. And, and for me, they... I was frustrated because they tend to get um, missed out of the debates that are that are happening around this, and so that's that's really what what motivated me to write this book to really fill in the gaps and and think about some of those hidden histories in this really kind of strange liminal part of people's lives that you know is so important, but you know we don't reflect on maybe too often. Yeah, that that human experience is really lacking from from most of the public conversation around transport and what what our transport and, and commute, commuting future might look like. How did you begin to conduct research for this book? Because it is kind of focused around individuals' experiences in, in some part and, and you speaking to them about their, their feelings and experiences when they travel to and from work and so on. That's right. And I think, again, it, it was really um, born of a frustration with the way that commuting was being written about by other people, both within academia but also in kind of policy and news circles. You know, we refer to the beleaguered commuter as if it was this single figure, um, you know, stripped of all complexity, all richness, all life and so i thought oh hang on there's a there's another there's a story to be written here about 
different experiences, about the diversity of experiences that people have, about the richness of experiences, you know, the fact that there are things that can be held in tension. You know, we might hate our commutes, but at the same time also have a certain kind of reverence for them as well, as you were saying earlier. You know, it might be the only time of day that you actually get to yourself, even though at the same time you would rather not be doing it. You know, our lives are full of these tensions and contradictions. And for me, the commute is, is you know, a perfect example of that. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I did love this idea that you explore that the commute is a skillful thing uh, because I, I, I was, um, I mean, is topical at the moment, but I was in Moscow earlier this year in January and you do know, you need to know how to do it. And you need to know the culture of what you do in those, in the train system or whatever it might be on the roads. It is actually quite a skillful thing and it's quite cultural in many ways. That, I, I, that, that's quite fun to unpack, I imagine. Oh, completely. I think, I think as a, as a social scientist, I, you know, I'm always sort of really surprised at, you know, when the things that we talk about, um, and if we, talk to our participants and say, oh, you know, you're really skilled at doing this. They say, no, I'm not. You know, this is just, <laughs> just my, a commute. Yeah, it's just my everyday life, for goodness sake. You know, stop bigging me up. But actually, as you know, if we if we reflect on, as you say, when we're in a different city or, you know, if we're maybe a car commuter and, and you know, um, or maybe a train commuter and the, the train line is being suspended for some reason and we have to find a, another way to work, suddenly... We think, oh, you know what? I, I, I don't, I don't know how to cycle. You know, I've never cycled in a in a city like this. Or, you know, which route do I take to? You know, there are all sorts of all sorts of really, really rich knowledges that we have, you know, in our bodies um, that help us do this on a really unconscious level. And maybe it's at times of disruption, especially that that um, that those skills are revealed to us. Yeah, and it's also you kind of do it unthinkingly often. I mean, I mean, commuting can be can feel like almost an automatic process. You do the similar or the same route every day, but we have this heightened sense of the intricacies of, of, for example, where we should be at a particular time when the news comes on the radio, for example, or if at 8.55 you're still stuck on a certain road, you know you're going to be 10 minutes late. And you speak to people who live, I mean, you're focusing on Sydney in this book, but you speak to people who live a little bit of a way out and have that highly attuned sense of, of their commute and how it works kind of on a timeline. Absolutely, yeah. And I think one of the things that was really that surprised me and delighted me in equal measure is is how is people's relationships to each other. So a really a, a kind of real achievement, yes to their skills and yes to times, but also to each other as well. I mean, it's funny, um so many of the people that I talk to um, you know, wouldn't maybe talk to the people on their trains uh, and and buses every day, but they had a a kind of sort of light-touch responsibility for those people. So, you know, oh, she, the person that sits over there in the green cap, you know, they weren't weren't there the other day. I really, you know, I hope she's okay. (laughs) Or, you know, someone that, someone talked to me about how uh, everyone in this one train carriage make sure that, you know, everyone knows where they get off at a certain point in their journey. And if someone's sleeping, they will actually go over and say, you know, it's, it's you know, make, it's time it's to get off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wakey, wakey. Well, that's really nice to, to think that because that it's still happening because it, uh, I get the sense that a lot of people are quite, you know, plugged in on the commute uh and maybe the the past few years anyway i'm seeing that happen more and more that people are really quite contained with their phone and their their headphones completely and I, and i think again um we hear so much about how either mobile phones are sort of corroding our attentions or reducing our social relations with each other and of course there's a more complex story there so i moved to melbourne a, a year ago and uh, i was really excited to take the tram and and i but i found myself becoming glued to my phone and and over time i thought Oh, you know, I, I'm kind of, you know, this, this, this isn't making me feel great. This is making me feel a little bit stressed. I'd rather sit here and, and kind of really enjoy being in this new space and, and enjoy the, you know, just 
dreaming about the various people around me and what are they doing in their lives and so uh and this this kind of, of course took me back to the book in that people would often kind of reflect on you know how the commute was either uplifting them or depleting them and so um you know again it comes back to that question of skill you know we might be pushed to tipping points where we think oh you know i'm i'm really not feeling great about this what can i do to change it and so it might be something as subtle as putting our phones in our bags you know for for the duration of our journey or it might be something like actually just um turning to the person next to us and and you know just seeing how they are um, it's all of these little micro moments, all these little strange dramas that are taking yeah, place. Yeah, and, and I mean, as a social scientist, you're, um, you write about kind of the, the social atmosphere or environment of these different um, transport types, whether it's a train or the tram and mm-hmm. so on, and how there's a certain unspoken etiquette in these spaces. And I wonder sometimes if people retreating into their devices is is a way almost to avoid eye contact and those sorts of uncomfortable situations when we're, you know, right up next to someone on the, on the tram seat where you kind of... You know, you're unnaturally close to somebody, and that's a bit of a strange thing. So you retreat into your into your phone. That's so true. I mean, it's it's one of the few social spaces in 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 our everyday lives that we're actually very you know we're sitting uh, cheek to cheek with with people that we don't know, and and you know in any other situation it would be seen as really bizarre and very very uncomfortable. Um, but of course, that whole idea of um, of, a, of a of a kind of shield of a, of a bubble around us has a really long history as well. So mm-hmm. you know, from the early days in the 19th century, you know, railway bookstores um, had precisely the same role. You know, this was this was a you know this was this was an awkward social space. Um, it was books and it was newspapers. Maybe devices are just um, phones, tablets are just a continuation of that. David, I thought by this stage, 2018, we would have you know not be commuting so much but we're commuting more than ever i thought you know we'd be in our pajamas logging in if you're you know to our offices or whatever it is work that you do that hasn't happened why not i thought that was the predictions of the future it's so true and so much of the talk in the 80s and 90s was uh, was around telecommuting and even that word has a sort of faintly nostalgic ring to it which is kind of kind of cute um but it's true. I think what that what that tells us is that um, that commuting is actually linked into so many other aspects of our lives that um, you know, for kind of good or ill, um, are maybe a little more intransigent. So work cultures, for example, you know, there's a reason that that, that people have to actually go into an office uh, or a workplace uh, on a fairly regular basis. Maybe it's about the importance of trust. Maybe it's about the importance of collegiality of forming work teams. So you know, the idea that we can just sit in, sit in our you know in our home offices in our pajamas tapping away. Well, instead you. You know, a lot of people are commuting to Sydney from Melbourne and back, you know. That's true. That's true. Exactly. And that, in fact, the, the long distance commuting in Australia has actually significantly increased over the last 10 years. I think it's, I think it's over 200,000 people that travel uh, over 200 kilometres uh, to work every day. Uh, well, in a variety of different ways, maybe every day, maybe every week including FIFO workers, of course. So, yeah, yeah, and that is something, I mean, the, the fluorescent vested FIFO fly and fly out to, to mines or whatever it is, uh, maybe it's backed off a bit now with the, with changes in that part of the economy, but that was massive and there's whole towns centred around it. That's right, exactly. And again, it kind of, you know, it, it really forces us to to question you know what what is what is what is it that we value you know in terms of our social relations with friends with the places that we live in with our communities um i think you're right i think the the kind of tale of the resources boom uh, or there's kind of fewer people that are required um automated minds and that sort of thing are certainly shifting that scene but there are lots of other people um professionals it consultants um you know that are that are doing those things every day you know being at melbourne airport at seven in the morning it's 
really, really challenging. Well, we have, a, we have a traffic jam to the airport almost every day. So mm, That's right, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, there's been attempts to, to change the hours people work, for example, to alleviate some of that stress that com- on commuting at a particular time. For example, I think, I don't know if it's still the case, but some years ago I think there was free train travel if you came in before 7am or something in Melbourne that was trialled for a good while. But now there's talk of the Saturday afternoon peak hour. So peak hours are changing as well and it's becoming in a city that's growing so rapidly like Melbourne where your commute's always going to take a little while given the infrastructure we have currently. That's right. And I think what's really interesting is that um, going back to what we were saying about devices earlier, people are increasingly using the commute to work as a kind of mobile office. Mm. Um, obviously, maybe um, what you do on a train and what you do on a car is different, but I, the people I talk to in my book maybe would uh, would spend the car journey you know, doing some important business calls, for example. They'd spend the train journey catching up on reading so that they were in, uninterrupted by, you know, mobile phone calls and the ping of emails. So, you know, these spaces are, in, are, are increasingly turning into, into mobile offices. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I was, I was doing a, um, a study placement in, in Jakarta some years ago and, um, lived probably about five kilometers from the place I was, I was working at at the time. And, and the first day I tried to walk there, which was impossible because it's Jakarta and you can't really walk around <laughs> without getting drenched in sweat um, but then tried to get a cab there the cab took two hours to go five kilometers and people at the office said oh no you don't you don't come to work at this time you come at you know midday maybe you stay till eight you stay till nine you come when you can because it's impossible to get here <laughs> well, <laughs> in any gosh. reasonable amount of time i mean i think uh, and again thinking of um, other uh, other people with other responsibilities a lot of people have in in my discipline have written about how for example women have a uh, a greater burden you know often having to take kids to school and then go to work afterwards so they have these sort of strange triangular journeys it's not just the there, there and back there are all sorts of other intricacies that are that they've got to you know that that, uh, that are factored in and that falls disproportionately on women mm. yeah and you do write a lot about the diversity of the commute but uh, one thing that struck me right in your introduction is um you know having a look at a city well mumbai and that some train stations have undertakers because commuting is life-threatening people are dying every day on the way to work because of the crush, because of the congestion, because of, I don't know, maybe they're, they're old or something. That's quite dystopian. It's really dystopian. And what, I remember reading that and just thinking, just being completely astonished uh, that this was somehow normalised, that these stations in, in, in India had undertakers because of just the, the, you know, the sheer amount of daily mortality. I mean, it was crazy. But I think uh, what's really interesting about that is that it, it does, um, you know, it, it of course raises massive questions about, well, if our cities are growing and there are more people travelling on our trains and in our transport infrastructures, you know, is this, you know, is this the kind of ultimate endpoint? You know, um, so it's a, it's almost a command to, okay, maybe we need to start investing more in our infrastructures. Maybe we do need more investment in public transport. Um, yeah. I wonder if it makes it better uh, with delays to know what the delays are. And that's one thing that has really changed and that you write about in some detail that we, we do have on our freeways predictors of how long it's going to take you to get from A to B or from this road to this road or uh, we'll have you know, real-time tram tracking technology and this sort of thing. Is this enhancing the experience for people just to know that the delay, what it might be? It's a really interesting question, isn't it? The fact that in the last 15 years, the commute has changed beyond belief because of the presence of these devices that, you know, that give us all of this information that previously would have really frustrated us, you know, standing at a bus stop. Why hasn't my bus turned up? 10 minutes, it's meant to be here. Now we have access to all all of that information. But 
Uh, and very often the presumption is that that's incredibly useful. You know, we can we can maybe um, factor it in in terms of how we get to the bus stop, and you know, it'll decrease. Ultimately, it'll it'll enhance our well-being. It'll make us less stressed. But actually. Um, is that really the case? And certainly some of the stories in, in the book attest to the fact that, no, actually, it, it, it actually might make us even more stressed. You know, seeing three delayed buses in a row, knowing that they're delayed, um, you know, and seeing that that delay is the same every day. Is that necessarily the case? A moment of bonding with others. That's right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, having gone through the process of, of writing this book, do you have, I guess, any any clearer sense or much of a sense of how we could be doing um, transport or, or infrastructure projects any differently? Because I know that's not explicitly the focus of, of your study here, but, but is there a way this can be better infused in our thinking about these very significant issues? Yeah, I mean, I think for me it's, um, you know, we are very often hear governments and policymakers um, pointing the finger uh, at very particular uh, places. You know, it's, it's, for example, lack of investment in, you know, uh, either motorways or lack of investment in public transport. It's the previous uh, government's fault. Exactly. Always the previous government's fault. That's right. Um, but I think what, what the, the sort of take home message from my book is that there really are so many different sites of responsibility. So having those conversations with workplaces about flexible working hours, those sorts of things. Um, you know, can I work for, from, from home for two days a week if I live maybe um, an hour and a half, two hours from 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 my place of work. These have really significant um, positive impacts for people. Uh, but it might be, as I've as I've kind of alluded to, it might be about experimenting ourselves with uh, with the journeys that we take. You know, if we are feeling really stressed or frustrated, okay, maybe we can't. Maybe we don't have too much wiggle room there. But maybe there is a little bit of wiggle room. Maybe even just, I don't know, if we if we're driving into work, trying a podcast that that might kind of make us feel that little bit better. Tuning into Drive Time Radio to feel that sense of collectivity with other people. Mm. There's always that little bit of wiggle room and that I find quite um, hopeful. Yeah. Well, ultimately, commute better for our everyday lives, David, or no? Look, I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to say either way. I think, uh, I think it, it's both our, it's both our ball and chain and our, you know, our, our point of uplift as well. Um, and I'm sure many of, many of your listeners will, would probably agree with me. Well, thank you very much for coming in to Triple I. You're launching the book tomorrow. All the best with that. And um, published by MIT, it's called Transit Life, How Commuting is Transforming Our Cities. Uh, David Bissell is the author. He's with the University of Melbourne. And there is a public event tomorrow night. I believe there's still places for this one down at the University of Melbourne. That's right, five till seven uh, at the Sydney My Asia Centre. That's right. So it's totally free. You probably need to register. So you just head to the uh, University of Melbourne website for that. It's called Transit Life: How Commuting Is Transforming Our Cities with David Bissell in conversation with a range of experts. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having Thanks. me. And there is a much publicised meeting tonight, uh, Australian time, between the presidents Putin and Trump. And it seems like a very apt moment to speak about the way ubiquitous digital surveillance is changing our society and the way targeted messages can influence our everyday decisions. This month, Crikey is running a three-week series on the way personal data has been used in a mind-boggling number of ways for the benefit of others, commercial interests, political parties, nefarious others who are privy to our most personal activities. Technology writer and broadcaster Stilgarian's behind the prying eyes series for Crikey and he joins us by phone and I suppose a lot of people just want to block their ears right now, Stilgarian, and go la 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 la, I know what's happening but what can I do? Um, it's, a, it's a massive topic though, How, where, did you, where did you choose to start when having a look at this? We actually started this with the idea of um, 
really putting together the pieces that we knew were out there. Like a lot of this stuff about digital privacy or about how Facebook tracks you, uh, some of it's known by geeks who build websites, others is no, others bits are known by, by privacy lawyers and other bits are known by the ad industry. So we, we put together a small team to just start reading and investigating as much as we could and trying to, to, to put it all together, sitting down with people who who um, you know, target digital ads and saying, well, what can you do? Where do you get the data from? All right, let's talk to them. Um, and although, you know, to be honest, there's not a lot of new, new things in the series, although there are. There's some lovely little pieces that, that you know, are out there. Uh, but it's mostly assembling all this to give you the big picture of just how vast uh, the information economy is, or the surveillance economy, uh, as some people are calling it. Uh, and I think to... to to put a size on that, Facebook pulls in $53 million a year in Australian dollars in, in revenue. They're really only the tip of the iceberg here. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about, um, I guess, the, the, the benefit of a series like this in terms of encapsulating all these different ways in which our online behaviour and, and the sorts of types of sites we visit and so on attract and, and passed on to third parties and that sort of thing. And part of it, I guess, is around our awareness as, as consumers, but also knowing the extent to which our personal data and, and information we really would prefer not to be out there is passed on to others. But some things that you've covered in terms of location-targeted advertising, you um, have one article on the way that Hyundai has tried to lure people within a particular geographic location to Hyundai dealerships. And if nothing else, I think this makes us more informed consumers to be aware of what we're being targeted with in the online space. Absolutely. That's a, a great story by, by Ben Grubb, that one. And the Hyundai... Uh, method, this, this one I really like, where, where you say like in the sense that I'm horrified, right? Uh, Hyundai's marketing people had the, uh, the impression that people weren't buying their cars because they were seen as a bit cheap, a bit plain, a bit ordinary. So what they did is that they, uh, started getting location data through one of the, the advertising targeting firms. Now, Every app on your phone that reports your location, all of that data is gathered up to create, if you like, a little map of everywhere you go. So if anyone happened to go to not just a Hyundai dealership, but let's say they went into a Toyota dealership or, or one of the others, doesn't really matter which one, if they're there for more than 10 minutes, chances are they were looking at new cars. So Hyundai was actually seeing, well, who's... Who's been to a Toyota dealership recently and targeting them with ads? And and and, th and that instead of making the cars better, actually targeting ads in this way worked. Seemed to they had a, a, a significant rise in, in sales. Uh, the, the reason why it's simple: you are hitting people with a message at exactly the time that they're thinking about buying a new car, and uh, if if the impression you get. Uh, is that they think the car's too cheap. Well, maybe the ad uh, explains the luxury features, whatever they might be in terms of, of a car. Uh, you can also cross-match. I don't, I don't know whether they're doing this. But you can target advertising. This is, this is my favourite one, and I'm not sure whether I use this in the series or not. If you're targeting a tweet at someone, you can choose from one of a couple hundred different archetypes and my favourite is fit moms as the Americans say, fit mums so young mothers will care about their fitness 
who have a kid under 10 and during the last month they have bought Fruit Loops, which is, of course, a high-sugar, not terribly healthy breakfast cereal. So you could target that person, that mother, with an ad for a better, healthier breakfast cereal, knowing that she's probably concerned about it, knowing that she does have a kid that already eats something less healthy. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think people have got a little bit more savvy or, dare I say, paranoid, I guess, <laughs> about data <laughs> privacy, particularly in the wake of Cambridge Analytica and so on. And, and one of your pieces that resonated with me was around the theory uh, that, that many people have about smartphones, Google or Facebook, listening into your conversations. And, and I'm sure people out there listening have had friends or themselves maybe where inexplicably an ad has popped up on their phone when they've just been having a conversation with someone about a certain shop they want to go to, a certain T-shirt they want to buy or something like this. But your uh, article suggests there's no evidence that this is actually a thing, but the reality may be, in fact, a bit more sinister. Yes. Um, sinister or creepy, certainly. I don't know whether sinister, that, that's... Let's go with creepy. That, <laughs> let's go with creepy. Uh, yeah, I, one of the things that hits me about this is that of all the ads that are thrown at you, chances are that every now and then one of them will be connected with something you've just been thinking about. That's just because there's so many ads. So that's a starter. And secondly, if you're already known to be interested in opera, chances are that you might have been talking about opera recently, so showing you an ad to buy opera tickets is not that big a leap, uh, particularly if you've been listening to opera on your phone or something like that. Uh, but the reality seems to be that once you combine all of this information from so many sources, that there's such a detailed profile of you anyway that that you can make pretty good bets. Location data comes into this again. We uh, actually uh, hired Hack Labs, which is a, a security consulting firm, to, to do some tests. And they said, look, it's, it's really hard to demonstrate this because if you create a new social media account, there's no information in it. So they don't know what ads to target you with. But while they were doing that, uh, the guy who was in charge of the testing happened to have a Saturday night at home. He's got two young kids. They were playing Fortnite pretty heavily. His brother-in-law came over with their kids and immediately after having spent an evening in the same house on the same Wi-Fi network maybe or uh, maybe just because they were in a physical location for a period on a Saturday night, you can make a, a fair assumption that if they're not related, they're good friends. Maybe they are barked as friends or relatives on Facebook. As soon as brother-in-law and kids go home, they're targeted with ads for the game as well, for the game Fortnite as well. So you can make a lot of inferences. It does get creepy, though, when you realise your location tracking. If you're in, like, a, a particular location from, I don't know, 7pm to 7am most days of the week, you can guess that that's the person's home. Same with their workplace, all of that. Someone I know actually had Facebook offer as a you-may-know-this-person uh, the woman who lived next door. Yeah, so even though they, they, they don't know. actually know each other. Well, they might know each other. <laughs> they don't know each other, but it's a bit creepy. The other thing that have been outed there, of course, are um, sex workers and their clients. And uh, another one which uh, got some, some flack in, in the US was uh, a psychiatrist patients were all suggested to each other, as you may know this person. Yeah, that's concerning. And um, we're speaking with Stilgarian about the Crikey series, Prying Eyes. And there was some information in um, in one of the articles about 
telcos uh, that I hadn't heard before, maybe other people had, is, um, you know, location insights being passed on from telcos to advertisers or browser history being sold uh, in the case of, of Optus. And I wonder about this because this is a, another level on top of, you know, location tracking of where you're walking around a city if you've got your device with location on. This is when you might be at home not realising this is, is going down. Yeah, uh, it's Optus in particular was uh, found to be uh, using your web browsing history uh, for marketing. So marketers could have access to what websites you're you're visiting. Now, I should say that that happens for all of the Optus customers in the background, but most of us already have uh, other organisations compiling our web browsing history anyway. Certainly any web page that has a Facebook like button in it, that means Facebook knows you visited that page, whether you're logged in or not. Uh, same with anything with a tweet button on the page. Same with anything that uses, say, Google's double-click ad network, which is one of the biggest. Any website that displays ads through that ad network is also knowing which websites in that network you are visiting. So, again, you can build a, uh, a solid uh, dossier on someone's interests just by the ad companies. But, but Optus was going one further and making that available uh, to, to marketers. Now, they will say, oh, but all that's just anonymous. Uh, we, we don't, you know, tell them who that is. But there's so many um, plugins in websites, so many ad networks, so many trackers that um, it can be pieced together. Uh, I, I'd, uh, another example of that supposedly anonymous information is uh, when you use something like uh, a loyalty card. Right? And this is, uh, this is another real case that's happening, and it concerns uh, Quantium, which is one of the big um, analytics firms, and they have a relationship with both National Australia Bank and with Woolworths. So, in theory... NAB passes on anonymous data and says, look, person number whatever, they go, they spend their money in these ways. And separately, Woolley says, well, we're not telling you who this is, but here's the kinds of things they buy if you want to target that person. But if you have access to both of those databases, then the fact that this NAB customer, you don't know who they are, but they spent $128.50 in the shop at 9pm, then the world of data says, well, who has a shopping list of $128.50 at 9pm? Here we are. So you can match the, the kind of financial information from the bank with uh, the, the shopping list stuff. And, and then that data can be used for other, other things. Uh, one of my favourite examples, and again, we don't know whether this is happening in Australia, but the sort of thing is happening in the US because their privacy laws are, are a little looser. Let's say uh, you've told your, your bank or your lender or your insurance company or whatever uh, that you have a, a salary above $90,000 um, and you've got that load or whatever. But what if your shopping list normally contains... Uh, uh, let's use a, a mail as an example here. The shopping list normally contains premium coffee, uh, the best cups of steak, uh, and uh, in the shopping there are also ladies' things whatever they might be. Then suddenly, after a while, uh, the meat is replaced by cheap mints. It's cheap brands of, of uh, uh, instant coffee and uh, all of the, the female items 
are no longer on the shopping list. You can make a fair assumption about what's just happened in that guy's life. And that's something that, as I say, your lender might wish to know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of clear to see why, I guess, um, companies, banks, um, organisations might, um, you know, find this information very useful to target advertising and, and that sort of thing. But on the un- other hand, we have um, governments uh, making, I guess, increasing attempts to pass legislation um, to collect and, and retain certain data on individuals. And this has happened, I guess, in the wake of 9-11 in some respect with the state of exception being used as justification for kind of collecting data and on on individuals and there being necessary infringements on privacy to essentially keep us all safe and i know there's facial recognition legislation being debated currently for example but given there's been some i guess um challenges the government's faced with regard to its own uh digital um infrastructure if we think about the census fail and centrelink's robo debt program for example do you think people have much faith in the the safety or security of their information that may be collected by government agencies uh, they don't. <laughs> Short answer. People don't have faith in the government's ability uh, to to collect to run things. Even as we speak, people are trying to opt out of the uh, My Health record. Uh, the opt out period starts today, and uh, some people are having a lot of trouble with that. It's it's heavily loaded. Who knew? Uh, when you say trouble, what do you mean? Trouble as in trouble opt- opting out, or just trouble like oh, concern? The website's overloaded, but uh, you know they've, they've got three months to opt out. So I just suggest to people if they are getting getting you know, a busy website or not getting through on the phone today, just leave it till next week. So set, but, a, uh, set a, um, a calendar alert, and then someone can see that, and then target why you should be <laughs> staying staying in it. <laughs> well, we we even have here is one of the little ways in in which this this picture of what you do is built up. In the government website for opting out of the My Health record, they use to prove that you're a human, not a robot, trying to trash the system, uh, a tool called ReCapture, which is run by Google. Now, this is no longer one of the, uh, you know, type in this fuzzy text, which you can't really read anyway. This is where all you have to do, you think all you have to do is click on the I am not a robot box, and it just happens. How that works is that in the background, uh, while you're looking at that page, it's tracking what you type and where your mouse moves and so on, and it uses uh, machine learning techniques to decide, well, does that look like how a human might look at that page or or, or not? Now, even though the, all of your personal data relating to My Health Record is not meant to go offshore, and they say that in, your, uh, in their privacy policy, the fact that they use recapture means that Google is knowing that you are on that page. And Google knows your identity because every website has Google Analytics and stuff embedded in it, or nearly all of them. Um, so Google already knows who is and is not opting out of the My Health record. Now, what do they do with that information? I don't know. But the, the, the uses to which large volumes of data can be put as something we're really only just beginning to understand. Yeah, it feels that uh, way. It feels like we have a lot to learn. And I wonder, um, just in the time we've got left, 
still going and um you know many of us feel like the horse has kind of bolted on this that it's um really been going on for a long time wow. and those profiles are out there wow. and it's so ubiquitous and um privacy is really difficult online and you know governments in some ways don't want some of the protections that maybe um individuals might might like but i'm starting on my phone apps to be asked again to sign up to new terms and conditions i think based on something that's happened in the eu with tightening some of this stuff up uh is there a way that you know civil society can actually start to bring measures in to protect privacy in these spaces i think it has to has to be a long-term thing and conversations like this and uh, uh, journalism like the Crikey Prying Eyes series are are really the beginning of that process. We have, as we said at the beginning, had an enormous first half of the year with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica in the news. We now have lots of people looking at Facebook. The European law you mentioned, uh, the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, came into force on the 25th of May. It requires a lot more transparency about what people are, uh, are doing with your data. California just passed a similar law for the state of California, which is A, the most popular state in the United States, and B, there are an awful lot of the global companies are based. Uh, and people are seeing these tougher laws as a model for the future. Uh, whether uh, the, these companies will eventually have to delete a lot of the data or rein in their practices. We don't know yet. It's, it's up to civil society saying, hey, we don't want this to happen. Or maybe we say, hey, we do want this to happen. We, we don't mind. But uh, I think we have to have an informed uh, discussion about that. And uh, our politicians are, are, not to put too fine a point on it, asleep at the wheel. <laughs> they don't even know how to use a smartphone, um, <laughs> half of them. Uh, little, you know, uh, I, I, my favourite was in the, in the uh, parliamentary committee discussing our digital surveillance laws. Uh, one senator actually said, so, so Skype, is that like a telephone on your computer? They're obviously not a tech head. No, but here <laughs> this person was deciding on the details of our, our digital surveillance mm. laws. So it's I, I love an informed debate, don't you, Dylan? Absolutely. No, you get you've got a twi- you've got a Twitter link to your prying eye series still, Garion, to that senator. They might read it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank no you worries. so much for um, chatting with us today, and um, all the best with the rest of the series. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.